Welcome to the Innovations in Anti-Aging Living Show with Dr. Ann Trong. Here's where we'll explore how to live your best life with stem cells. Listen in to hear key opinion leaders, mentors, motivators, and other guests discuss about stem cells innovations. Stem cells will redefine medicine. This show will lead you to slow down aging and thrive to live the life you've always wanted to live. Hosted by Dr. Ann Trong, the international best-selling author of Erectile Dysfunction Fix Using PRP to Treat ED. And she has been recognized as Entrepreneur of the Year. This podcast is sponsored by the Trong Rehabilitation Center. Visit Dr. Ann Trong at trongrehab.com. That's T-R-U-O-N-G rehab.com. Or call her today at 540-374-3164. That's 540-374-3164. Hello, I have Dr. Charles Ronald today with me. He is the creator of the Vampire Facelift and the Old Shot and the Priapus Shot. I am so glad that he's here because he has been sought after for many people for a podcast interview, and he decided to do it with us today. Tell us about how you you came to where you are mm-hmm. at this point, like your so, sure autobiography. So I was one of those guys or people who knew... For some reason, as a child, first grade, that I wanted to be a physician. You know, first grade, I had no idea about sexual medicine, obviously. I just wanted to be a physician. And I remember looking at textbooks where they would have the one line that said, you know, Ben Franklin discovered this, or so-and-so, Pascal discovered this. And I thought, you know, I would like to one day, my goal as a first grader, is I want to have one sentence in a book where someone says, Charles Reynolds thought of that. Just one thing that I think of that becomes a line that adds to the collective body of knowledge for medicine. And so that was my goal. And so as far as how came to this point, is in the process of doing that, I made a route though as a child. I was a, the mad scientist who had the chemistry set and made chlorine gas so my sister had to evacuate the house. I was making things with electronics, made a metronome out of some stuff I bought at Radio Shack, remember that? I made a thing where you could talk through a, I remember I got my mother's mirror off of her makeup powder puff thing, which she's probably maybe still looking for, but back in the <laughs> 60s, getting that mirror, gluing it to a toilet paper roll, and bringing up a thing where the light would come off the sunshine, reflect off the mirror onto a solar panel, and you could talk across the light wave. So it was, as a kid, I was sort of a mad scientist, but I, that had this vision of making something. I didn't care what it was, just something. So that's why people like Ben Franklin, literally as a, as a child, I thought, oh, that's a cool guy. He was a inventor, he was a statesman, he was a rebel. So I truly had these heroes as a kid. It wasn't Superman, it was Benjamin Franklin. And then it, was, it became um, Pasteur. Now the FDA would have just slaughtered all the stuff that Louis Pasteur did. The FDA would have so taken him down but whatever, he helped create the idea of the germ theory. He came up, obviously, with this thing about the smallpox vaccine. 
And so as a child, I had a picture of Louis Pasteur on my wall that I still have that I tore out of a magazine somewhere. Just a weird child, I guess. So I did some work as a research chemist before going to medical school. And then in my practice, as I grew up, part of what came out of what I did taking care of people from my ER days and some of the research I did in private care is I just came, the short version is I came to have a real uh, heaviness about what I thought and still think is a largely not talked about and not thought enough about problem, which is how relationships get ripped apart by sexual dysfunction. And so that became something I wanted to put my brain on. So maybe I hope that answers your question. But that's kind of where I got to this place to where I was willing to risk everything to come up with one or two good ideas that would help do that. We'll, we'll go back to that. Okay. I want to dive into that. But we want to know who you are and you were a boy. So what happened when you were growing up and you were ripping that picture off of pasture? So what, what was the, uh, the chronological order of graduating high school, went to college, and then you said you were a chemist? Yeah, so I got, so tell I had us a, what you did. So I had a job as a physical chemist, and what I did really was top secret. And I actually made the mistake of saying on the phone once what I did, and the FBI was at my house the next day. They really do listen. And so I don't say what I did, but it was something good to help make the planet safer. I'll leave it at that. And during that process, which I love because it taught me the way PhD researchers think. I'm not a PhD, but I was had a chemistry degree and a math, uh, really strong math background. And so working in that environment where you don't survive if you don't have new ideas. Hmm. Versus where, when I went to medical school, I found out very quickly, be careful with with new ideas because if you have too many of them, you won't survive. Because obviously there's, as there should be, a resistance. There needs to be some carefulness about taking care of sick people, obviously, because we don't want to hurt people. So in the research chemistry arena, it was... You have to come up with new ideas or you don't survive. Then I became in medicine and I learned, ooh, be careful with the new ideas because it can scare people. But it's still that background helped me when I got into medicine to know how basic science researchers and engineers think to try to put things together in a new way to make sure. Which you decided to go to medical school because you were working at the chemistry. You've always wanted to become a doctor. Yeah, so I actually didn't get into medical school the first time. Or the second time, Hmm. or maybe, yeah, was it the second time? Yeah, so I was going to, I was working full-time as a chemist and decided I was going to just go into biomedical engineering. And so I was doing engineering classes in the evening, and then I said, ah, what the heck, I'll try one more time. And I had basically the idea, I don't even really care anymore because I'm engineering school. I was a really shy, introverted person, like major shy, introverted person. My, my scores were sky high on my um, academics were sky high, but I was like scared to talk to people. So interviewing, I'm sure I looked like a little mouse. And then when I got a I don't care attitude, 
because I'm going to engineering. I don't need you guys anyway because you guys are afraid of a new idea. I'm going to make up the instrument you're going to pay me to buy and came in with that attitude. Boom, I'm in medical school. So, yeah, so that's but good for me. It was one of those things where had I gone straight to medical school, I would have missed the... Um, I was so shy most of my time in college. I didn't even go to the cafeteria. Wow. Like really, really really not afraid of crowds but just basically so much of an introvert you know that my time as a child I spent much of it alone even though I was on the edge of town I had a little bird dog and I just spent my days in the forest and I went to a little tiny high school and now I show up at a university and the crowds were uncomfortable for me I didn't date much I was uh I didn't go to my senior prom. I think I had two dates in all of high school. But I had four part-time jobs. I always worked like a dog. And I worked out. And so I had a really strong work ethic. But my work was usually doing something quiet. So even when I was a lifeguard, I wasn't having to talk to people. So I was really, really very, very painfully shy. And I'm sure the first two interviews were just absolutely horrible. They hmm. probably thought this guy can't even have a conversation. But then when I got a I don't care attitude, I blew it away and I go to medical school and I did well and 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 thankfully by not getting into school those first two times, I got the strong background of the research environment and the engineering classes and how to think and do the tedium of actually producing the new idea so it's not just in your brain but it's out there so that literally it's protecting our soldiers as I speak so that's the um, how long were you working at the chemist? so those three years three years trying to okay. get into medical school uh huh yeah. So ha- when did the Charles Wanda introvert became? Hey, I, I need to. I don't have to care. I do now. I can talk with people. More so not. So the first two years of medical, st- I'm still in the books. I'm still shy. I don't really have many um, contacts with people. I'm awkward at every party, and then you go to the hospital and you have to make rounds, and that's really where it had to change because now I have to sit and talk to someone and get the intimacies and the secrets and the problems and the pains. And literally, that's where I learned to talk to total strangers because I had to do it to survive. And um, and then, of course, the idea of speaking to a crowd terrified me, as it does most people. But I think what helped me was that I knew what I had to say had to be said. And so it helped me get over or get a, get through. It didn't go away, but it got. I had to go through that fear of standing in front of doctors, you know, hundreds of doctors, and knowing that some will criticize me and some won't, but also knowing that the message I had to deliver had the possibility of changing many lives for the better and so being willing to take to do that it just became a necessity so now I don't have a problem as like anything else I I will easily with very with actually enjoy the uh, rush 
like you might enjoy a fast car or a motorcycle or something. It makes you get a little butterfly, but you're enjoying it, or a roller coaster or something. I enjoy the rush of getting in front of very smart people and hoping I have something that's helpful to them that I try to deliver in a way that they find helpful. But to get my energy when I'm over, I still have to go back to my cave hmm. and be quiet and silent. You still get the butterflies when uh, you get in front of people I get now? the, a little bit. I get, it's not so much terror or even fear anymore. It's more anticipation, like you're having sex for the first time or something. You're not, you're a little bit butterfly, but you're anticipating it in a pleasurable way. And sometimes, in some ways, it is better than sex because there's a, uh, it, it's, it's hard to compare any, there's not many things that bring you, in my opinion, as much joy, which you know as being a teacher, as bringing any just a small nugget of information to someone that you know not only helps them, but then multiplies and helps thousands of their patients. So I get a rush from it, but then I still go, like yesterday, I don't think I spoke to anybody except the person that signed me into the gym. And and maybe 30 minutes or an hour with my staff getting them ready for the presentation we did today this meeting. Otherwise, my phone was off. I texted my son and didn't speak to anybody to save up energy for today. And when this meeting is over at the end of the day tomorrow, I will go somewhere probably and just not talk for a day to regather energy. So what happened uh, after medical school? So what, what's the transition in your life at that time? Okay, so I did a, my residency, and for some reason I was blessed, like most doctors, I think, with pretty good energy. So we, as I said, even in, through high school, I had three gyms, basketball gyms, where I was the janitor, three different ones. And I kept the clock, and I scalped rock concert tickets and I worked as a flashlight guy at a parking lot to help every time they had an event wow. so I had I would keep literally at least two jobs all through high school I didn't have the I was too shy to go on a date so I just went and worked and did really good in school in spite of it I would, but the energy was there so um, so in medical school, I was one of those guys who would do my would go work the ERs a lot. Mm-hmm. So when you, as you know, during your residency, you get to where you can go. You're legal to go work emergency rooms. So I would, without caffeine, by the way, I didn't start drinking caffeine until I was forty. I just thought it was cheating. So all through college, no caffeine. I might have drank one pot of coffee all through medical school. And so in the ER, I would I would save energy by just controlling my emotions. My thinking was that if you're tired after just talking to people, I'm not picking up heavy things. So I should, if I'm tired, it's because I have an emotional leak. Hmm. So I tried to control my energy and my emotions and not overeat and stay fit. And so I would just sleep about every third night and work residency and then go moonlight, residency and moonlight. So even though I was doing internal medicine 
residency, by the time I finished residency, I had so many hours logged in the ER. I had a true, I had that true skill set. So it appeared to me like a better lifestyle at the time. I didn't have any children yet, so I went to the ER and would work more shifts than anybody there because I enjoyed the work. But still was looking for the thing, that thing for that sentence in a textbook. So you went to, uh, 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 did you do an ER residency? or Just internal medicine with gobs of hours okay. of ER medicine. Okay, and what was your first job after residency then? So I literally had hospital privileges in 14 different ERs in Alabama. And I, I had one December, for example, it's probably my busiest month, had a December during my residency where I slept one night in my bed. I would just go from hospital to hospital, take a nap when I could, do my residency, do another hospital. Just and why do you do that? What, what, that? That to me sounds like, wow, that's pretty extreme. Why do you do that? What, what drives you to do that? What, what makes you feel that you, ne- you needed to do that or you wanted to do that? Um... I honestly don't even know. It, it made it brought me pleasure. I don't know why that would bring me pleasure, and somebody else gets pleasure by climbing a mountain or watching the television or writing a book. At that time, it brought me pleasure to have the idea of someone coming in an ambulance, and it could be anything. It's like a steady stream of puzzles. Only you have to solve it, and if you don't get it right, somebody could die. And then once you solve it, you're done. Another doctor did the tedium of once they're in the ICU or do the surgery or whatever, but you had to figure out what was wrong, as you know, very quickly or reasonably quickly, and then you got to go to the next problem. So I think it was something about the continuous diagnostic part, not so much the procedure part or even the trauma, just the constant barrage of solve this problem, if you get it right, someone's happy and lives a long time. If you miss it, they die. That challenge is like a math problem because as you know, diagnosis is logic. And and so doing that continuously thrilled me for some reason. I'm not sure why. So is that just your personality that you needed to work at 15 different places, slept in your bed one time of the week is, is that what drives you to do that <coughs> it was, to me it was uh, well uh, I wasn't married at the time and again I'm the introvert and as you know in the ER even though you're surrounded by people you're still very much alone aren't you because you're not there socializing and you might say something socially occasionally but you're, isol- you're purposefully isolated because you have to think about what's going on around you and so I think it was part that and part just the living in an experimental life for example my 11th year 11th I think it was 11th grader because I wasn't out of high school yet I read where Spartans slept on a rock to make themselves tougher and so I thought, well, shoot, I'm going to try that. So I slept on the basement floor of my parents' house 
I allowed myself a sleeping bag on the concrete floor so it wouldn't get cold. And I did that for a year just to do it. And so I don't know what makes, that's kind of punishing yourself. But to me, it was a fun game of an experimental life. How can I just suck more out of a day? And if that did something for Spartans, if they thought that did something, I wanted to know what that thing was. And actually did, by the end of the year, get to where I could sleep anywhere. To this day, I was recently, probably a year or so ago, I was in um, somewhere out in California. San Diego, I think it was. Anyway, I was touring a museum with a sweetheart of mine, and I said, I'm kind of... I think I'd like to rest for a minute. I just feel like I'd like a nap. And and so I lay down on a park bench, and she was shocked because literally in less than five minutes, I was absolutely out cold on just a rock-hard park concrete bench. And so, I mean, that's kind of, I don't know if that's a party trick or what, <laughs> but somehow it was worth thinking about. I lived... With nothing for a while, I think I've mentioned to you once, I lived out of my car for my third year of medical school. Why? Like literally living, I had read Walden and how he went and built this cabin in the world, in the woods to contemplate, to think about his life and experience not having, owning nothing, basically, you know, throw hoed beans and, and lived in the forest and... So I wanted to feel what that was like, and I thought, okay, I'm, as you know, I'm sleeping every third night during residency in the hospital anyway, so I'm going to have to figure out two out of three nights. And these were the days before cell phones. We had beepers. Mm-hmm. So I got a post office box, and I had a beeper, and I had a YMCA card and a library card, <laughs> and I put my books in a storage room, and I'd keep a week's worth of clothes in the back of my car, and I would sleep on... Like as I said, every third night I'm in the hospital on call, but they were building a hospital. I would put my sleeping bag in the hospital they were building, a rehab hospital. So I started off on the concrete floor. Then when they moved in the beds, I'd sleep on the beds. And then when they moved in the patients, I moved out. But that process took about six months. And then I slept. I would sometimes go sleep I might work all night, and then I go take a nap. I don't have a house to go home to, so I might go back and sleep in a park on a bench, like some bum or something. And so there was a state park near where I lived, or where I was working in the hospital. I would go put a tent there and live in the tent for a week. Uh, professors would ask me over. It was uh, an experiment in owning nothing. And finally, the dean got word of it and told me that I've dressed nice. Even though I didn't have a home, I I bathed and I took care of myself and stayed in shape and worked out at the Y and had nice clothes. But I think it embarrassed him that I didn't have an address. And he actually made a rule for our school that you have to have an address to be a medical student. (laughs) They made up that rule for me. And so I wound up getting an apartment for my senior year. But it was interesting. You know, you hear about someone who has a million dollars sewed up in their overcoat and they're sleeping under a bridge. The truth is... Obviously, there are many homeless people who just can't do better, most of them. I actually think a lot of it is just the fact we don't have enough mental hospital beds anymore because I think a lot of schizophrenic people who suffer with schizophrenia mm-hmm. and other mental diseases that we would have made a bed for now, we don't. Mm-hmm. We have something like a half a million less 
mental health beds than we did in the 70s, mm-hmm. and we have way more people. Right. So when I see people on the street, you can diagnose them. You see them there having visual and auditory hallucinations on the corner where I think in the 60s someone would have said, hey, this guy needs help, and take him to a mental hospital. Now they just sit there and hope somebody drops a quarter in their, in their pocket. But the, but the truth is there are some people, and I became one of those people, who enjoyed the feeling of not being attached to anything. So I was kind of glad when the dean made me get an apartment because I, because I was starting to like that too much. I didn't want to have anything. Which you can't really do a family without. My dad was joking. He said, you're going to be the only bag doctor in town living out of a grocery cart. Uh But it it did change me. Because when I started handling things again, things, simple things like have an apartment or have a house, the truth is we don't own anything. It's all, we don't take any of, nobody takes a trailer behind the hearse, right? We're all really, whether you own it or not, we're all just getting to use it for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I had to embrace the idea that we're stewards. We're just caretakers. Even if you have the deed on your house, even if you own your car, whatever that you have that you think you own, you're really just the caretaker for it until you go to another place. And so it becomes becomes am I willing to embrace things and care for them and embrace people and care for them and to do that I need to have things that that I don't hold on to but I put them to their highest use or let them flow to someone else if they're not needed so I try to really I don't have to try actually I don't I'm not attached to things at all is that still the case now? Yeah, it's really, really the case now. Um, I eventually, I scaled up to have my kids, and I scaled, as you back, as you know, all the way back to basically an office slash place to live that was very modest, and then recently got another house because my sons now are grown up, and when they come back with their friends and girlfriends, they couldn't stay in my modest place. So ironically, I... To be that dad that they bring home friends and stay with, I need a bigger place than I did when they were young. So I wound up getting a bigger house, but to me, it's just the tool that I have to take care of my, to be able to embrace my sons when they want to visit. But the house is pretty much meaningless to me. I was, in some ways, I was happier and freer when I owned nothing living out of my car. So when you were living out of your car and you were medical school, did you think about what people may think of you, or yeah, that didn't come yeah. occur to you? Yeah, so there were some people who obviously thought, I'm sure I was crazy or at least eccentric, but there were others, I had, as I said, medical professors who were invite me to dinner and were curious about it. Some people, as I said, were offended by it. Most people didn't really, if you think about it, the space we take up in another person's brain is, even the people we love, like, okay, I, my mom is still alive at 82, at 80 years old, and of course I love her dearly, but I might think of her maybe, I mean, I just thought of her, maybe that's all I've thought of her this whole day, and she gave me birth. So the actual space I take up in any individual person's brain 
on a daily basis or a weekly or monthly basis is so minuscule, I don't really care. Mm -hmm. And even in my introverted days, it wasn't about so much caring what people thought as it was just not having the social skills or the desire to interact with everyone. And it sounds like an asshole thing to say, but, but, you know, Leonardo da Vinci said that he preferred silence because most people's talking is not better than what he could find in the silence. And so, um, yeah, so some people liked it, some people didn't care, some people didn't like it, but it never was relevant to me what they thought. It was never relevant to Until you. the dean didn't like it. Then that became relevant. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you, you sounds like you were always kind of go, your, go by your own beat, even when you were younger. I think that, yeah, absolutely. Do you think where did that came from? Um... You know, I think there's something to be said about, I mean, we all have our genetic predisposition, but I think there's also something big to be said about environment. And even though my father worked in Birmingham, he put us on the edge of town where literally I could walk out my back door and there were miles of land that eventually the steel company strip mined for the coal. But at the time, it was just forest. And this was the 60s and 70s when you had a black and white TV with three stations on it, no internet, no cell phones. Mm -hmm. And so, and I didn't even have many friends to play with. I think that's part of what led to the awkwardness is that near to me, I had people at school, but near to me, there weren't that many even children. We were sort of isolated. So I had an English setter and I had a big forest and lots of time to figure out what to do with my uh, what could be boredom and the reason I hesitate with that word is I tell my sons if you're bored you're probably boring because the world is fascinating wherever you are it's fascinating and and so I was really fascinated by things but I was forced if I had to come up with an easy answer to it I would say that I had a really strong parents who created a safe environment with very little drama and we were it was modest very modest home and modest means my dad was installing telephones for a living climbing poles with a with a blue collar worker uh, salary but it was it was a nurturing safe and my mom was the 1960s mom you know that stayed home and mm-hmm. and we had a garden and she would make pickles out of the cucumbers and cook breakfast starbucks could have never made it with my family because mother made coffee in the morning and it's, it's one thing that people forget about that sounds sort of crazy now but it's really how it was but in the 60s if you talk to someone who's 80 years old this is neither not nor right or nor wrong. It's just the way it was. If your wife went to work, most men thought that was a disgrace because most men thought you were not doing your job as a husband to care for your family if 
the mother of your children had to leave the home to go work. It's such an odd thing to think about now, but that was the dogma. Mm -hmm. And whether it's right or wrong is, is obviously women have so much to contribute to society that that created an environment where people like you who have so talented would have would have had a different environment to prosper in or to flourish in but it wasn't necessarily it wasn't men somehow putting their thumbs on their wives most of them in my family it was my father just felt like that was his job to make it to where it was my mother could be there if she wanted, she wound up selling Tupperware and doing other things and being very industrious. Maybe that's where I got some of my ideas about sales. But she was very, she is very bright still, very industrious, and wound up making money as a seamstress. And she was always working. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, the short answer—it's not—it's too late for it to be a short answer. But if I had to sum it up, it was a nurturing environment. You know, another thing that she did is she would take me to the library. We didn't have a huge library in our home, just a few books, literally. Mm-hmm. But she would take, and she didn't read to me that much, but she would take me to the library as a child, and I would just check out gobs of books, and then she'd take me back the next week. And so by the time I was, uh, and you could drive, there was a local little library on the edge of town, but she could drive 40 minutes into Birmingham and take me to an inner city library where, you know, five stories, lots of books, and I would just stay in there and come home with piles of books. My dad, who worked downtown Birmingham, would take me to work in the summer with him when I was a school kid, and his one advice was, don't hang out at the park because there's guys down there who like little boys and they might not be nice to you. And so, but I could go anywhere else in downtown Birmingham and I usually meant I would wind up in the library and just spend all day there. Mm. So I had this really nurturing environment that was safe with nothing electronic to distract me except for a few boring black and white TV shows. So maybe that created something. Oh, and downtown, downstairs we had a basement where my dad, even though he was a telephone person, he had lots of electronic stuff. If somebody had something that was broken, they would bring it to him. It could be a TV. I remember the scoreboard, one of the gyms I worked. It could be your, he wired our house. He just understood electronics, self-taught guy with lots of electronic. He wound up having electrical engineers working for him, just self-taught, even though he only had a high school education. And so I would plow into his stuff and read about things tell you something else that I did that's kind of scary to think about now. So these were the days before 911. Yeah. Okay. So I have this space downstairs. It's it's an unfinished basement. So it's concrete floor and our little house is upstairs. But it's a full basement. I can stand up in it and I've got a little bench that I can do things on. And I have his bench with all, back when you could, Radio Shack was really a thing and you could buy transistors and resistors. And that's where I would build these things after seeing him do stuff with his soldering iron. I would get into his books and try to make stuff. But the chemistry thing appealed to me too. So I, I would come home with these chemistry books. Now, I couldn't get everything I needed and I don't have a driver's license. Huh. But I'm working mowing lawns, so I got a little money. 
So I went and got the catalogs for the chemical companies out of the Birmingham Public Library. And on my mother's old royal typewriter, manual typewriter, I couldn't even type back then, hunting and pecking, I typed out a letter and I made up a company and I called it Focus Research, made myself the president, and requested catalogs. And I got chemical supply catalogs. In the days before 911, I'm telling you, I could order anything I want as a 10 year old child. Oh my goodness, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. And so, I never did anything really dangerous. Probably the, only, the most dangerous thing I did, as I alluded to a moment ago, is I used electrolysis to take two of my mother's pickle jars and a couple of batteries and used a super saturated salt solution basically using table salt and water and a, and a battery, created a pickle jar full of pure chlorine gas. Wow. And when it tipped over, now, you know, with without the salt, you get oxygen and hydrogen. Mm-hmm. But when you use a supersaturated salt solution, one of those jars fills up with chlorine gas. And when it tipped over, that one pickle jar full of chlorine gas was so strong my, one of my younger sisters and I were home alone. My parents were out somewhere with the other sister. And we had to evacuate the house. You could not be in there and breathe. And I remember her standing out. She's four years younger, so she was probably six, and I was 10 or 11. And we're standing out in a really cold night. And she's in her little slip, aggravated because we had to evacuate from chlorine gas. From your pickle jar. <laughs> from a pickle jar in my battery. So yeah, I guess I was. Did you get in trouble with your parents? I don't from that incident. I don't know. I did not. I know that much, but I don't. She was pretty good for covering for me. I don't know if they ever. Even got <laughs> yeah. So what happened? Uh, so you were working uh, at that time, fourteen uh, hospital. So what happened next in your life? So I do the ER medicine, and I have a family. So you got married. Got married. You got, you got and married. I have a family. And then about the time my oldest reached the second grade, yes, he was about first or second grade, I started to realize it wasn't working, the ER, because I would be working on a a Saturday when he's at school, excuse me, when he's not at school, and I'd be off on a Tuesday when he's at school. So I realized that because of the variability of my schedule, even though I had time, it was often when I couldn't spend time with my son in school. And somewhere in there, in his early grammar school days, I said, I'm not going to grow up without, I'm not going to have my sons grow up without knowing me. So I want a practice that gives me more regular hours so I can be home at night and there on the weekends when he's off well open the practice turns out doesn't work that way does it so mm-hmm. the practice is so busy I'm working till late and I'm working weekends um, so th- that led to some of the research and some of the the innovations that would create a way for me to be home mm-hmm. when it was time for supper Right, so you try to open up your own practice, but you still realize that you were taking a lot of your time, mm-hmm. and your priority at that time was to spend more time with family. Mm-hmm. So what's the next step? What's so the that? next thing, you know, our best stuff comes out of our worst stuff. So the next thing that happened was that 
I'm doing clinical trials, which came to me naturally because of the research background. I was doing some pharmaceutical clinical trials, and the marriage broke apart, and the judge gave me my children six nights a week. So that forced me to figure out a way to be home more. And the quick version of that story is because I was already doing some things with hormones before Suzanne Summers did her first book, 18 years ago I was doing clinical trials with growth hormone and doing testosterone pellets 18 years ago, soon to be 19 years ago in 2000. It it gave me something I could offer for a more controlled practice with on a cash basis so that I could do more in less time and be at home. So that was the next thing, was going to practice that was cash-based so that I could actually spend more time with my patients. As you know, if well, the last I read an actual study about this you have to see 21 patients as a primary care people person to break even. So at 15 minutes apiece, this was a New England Journal article, I don't know, back early 2002, something like that. To break even at 21 patients in a day at 15 minutes apiece, you break even about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is when I needed to be home with the children. Mm-hmm. So the math didn't work. Mm-hmm. So if I knew if I had to, if I wanted to be home at dinner time, I had to come up with a different model. And of course, 15 minutes apiece, what can happen in some practices is that you wind up a complicated person, you lose money, so you wind up just referring them to the specialist. And then the specialist does their procedure to look at them, scope them, cath them, whatever they do, do the EKG or the EEG, and then they send them back to the primary care person. Uh-huh. And so it can happen in a not perfect world that people get shuffled around with procedures being done with no one with really true passion for diagnos- diagnosing. Not bad people, doctors are good people, almost all of them are good people, but the business model forces them to not have the leisure to really think deeply sometimes as they would like about patients. So I created a way by going into a cash practice that I could treat people for free when I wanted or have the leisure to spend time with them and still make it home for dinner. So at that time you were a single father, mm-hmm. you went from taking insurance, and went to totally uh, cash. That took a lot of gut. Yeah, so that, I did. How, how did you prepare for that? So uh, I think part of the preparation was living out of my car. I had to be willing to let go of the things. So I let go of a house I, that was almost paid for. I let go of all the things, but I still had my sons. And I found a little cottage across the street from their elementary school. And I put them there. And I said, we're going to have dinner at night. And let me sit down at the computer and try to help where people can find what I know how to do. Help them find me so that I can then do something of value to them that, that is valuable enough I can stay home for dinner at night. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I sat down at the computer and I went to as many, uh, obviously if someone's going to give you cash for something, you better be very good at it. So I just went back to my research days and tried to narrow my focus so narrow that I could be extremely good at, at a few things. And um, 
so having experience, having not being, have our experience knowing nothing basically, and living through that and being happy with it, it was really easier to give that up, that being the house and the stuff, than it was to give up my days in the ER put some part of my brain on the shelf mm-hmm. so that was a grieving practice part of my life when I decided that I can't do ER and live the life I want to think that take that expertise and decide mm, I guess I'm not going to use this anymore mm-hmm. it felt it was sad for about it for a while mm-hmm. I can imagine can imagine yeah. so you were doing hormones Yes. So, uh, at that time, and so what was the first epitome about uh, PRP and how did you, your first procedure, I believe, was, you said PSHA? Was that the first um, procedure? Okay, so I was doing hormones, and hormones not just for menopausal, the typical menopausal symptoms that people might think about, hot flashes, fatigue, cloudy thinking, but also how it related to other things like pain and weight and uh, depression, all the things that we know from some, from some of the research that's out there. But one of the drawbacks was that when women lose weight and they lose the fat in their cheeks, after they lose somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 pounds, usually the 40-pound mark, they want to gain their weight back because their face starts to look older. So I initially learned the cosmetic work, Juvederm, the fillers, Botox, to try to encourage my weight loss patients to continue to lose weight. But then, so the, the, the perfect storm was that three things, basically. I'm doing cosmetic work, and... I've developed this expertise and a heart for women with sexual problems because of the hormone work. It didn't set out to be sexual medicine. It was just, let me help you with your menopausal symptoms, which required me to talk about hormones and sex. And and so I, 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 it was shocking to me how many women were not telling their doctor, their husband, their best friend, their preacher, nobody that they were having troubles with their sexual arousal or function. And I would see them cry in my office and say, I love my husband so dearly, and I don't understand why I have no desire for him physically anymore. And just sob about it. And then with not a lot to offer them. I would do my testosterone pellets. That would help them a lot. But there wasn't all the options that we have now. It was basically, let me do my best with your hormones. But then you kind of ran out of things after that. As you know, to this day, we have no FDA-approved, even testosterone, that's FDA-approved, designed for women. We're having to take what's made for men and uh, somehow modify it, which is really should be angering to every doctor. Um, It's not that the world is bad, but that thing should be angering. We have nothing at all that's that's even on the market to help women with uh, orgasm. We have one drug for libido that gives you an extra one encounter per month. Basically, the problem is 
is so under talked about. So I had that burden and that knowledge about how common it was, not just from the research, but by observing it. Now I'm doing the clinical, I'm doing the cosmetic work. And I've done some wound care work as an ER guy with a hospital-based hyperbaric wound care center for diabetic wounds and such. So that was the perfect storm. Then when PRP hit the market for the cosmetics indications, when it was first introduced to me, the person who came to me just selling a PRP centrifuge said, use this like Juvederm in the face. You get new volume and new blood flow, and there's never been a side effect. So when I heard him say new volume and new blood flow, I thought this should be used in the penis for better erections. So I went, but I said, I'm going to use it in the face and watch what happens. So that's where the vampire facelift came from. I started using it and I could see the the glow that came afterwards. I could see the neovascularization. Their cheeks look rosier. So I thought, well, this might work, and I couldn't find where anyone had ever injected into a penis. This was 2000. So the facelift was first. The facelift was what I first started talking about, but I was doing the face to, to, to see what happened so that I could see if I wanted to try it in the penis. In the meantime, I'm reading the research to see if anyone has ever done it. No one had ever injected PRP in the penis that had ever been published anyway. And so uh, there had been some studies by Scalfani and others about using it in the face for nasolabial folds. And as you know, in the back of the, uh, he did a study, biopsy study in the back of the arm. And others had done studies in other parts of the body, but no one had ever injected the penis with it. So about after about four months of doing the vampire, I injected my own penis. It seemed to help things, but I still didn't talk about it much. I mostly, the vampire started going crazy. People loved the name. They loved the results of, of the combination of the two. And I actually tried to keep it a secret that I was even the one that thought about it because I wanted it to be about the doctors that were doing it and be about the procedure. But I was manning the website and trying so to... So this was 2000? 2000. In the year uh, for the facelift? No, excuse me, 2010. 2010. Pardon, pardon, yeah, okay, so that was for the facelift. Yes. Yeah, for the time. face, pardon me, yeah, 2010. Mm-hmm. So... So then I'm still doing the P-Shot, but I'm not talking about it much. And so what happened between facelift and then down to doing the genitals? Okay. So what, what makes you kind of like, oh, maybe I should do this for, you know, the penis? From it was the actually face. the first thing I thought about. Because huh. when, the, when, the, when the PRP rep came, I'd never touched PRP before. Even in my wound care stuff, I was using... You know, uh, all these different, I was using the hyperbaric medicine, but just wound care and the aquaforward, all these things that you do for diabetic wounds. But I hadn't been exposed to PRP. But it was what he said to me when he said, you get new blood flow and new volume, and there's never been a side effect. I instantly, that second, thought that should work for a penis if what you're telling me is true. I'm telling you, while I'm still looking at him, he just got the sentence out of his mouth. That's what I thought. But I said to myself, I'm going to try what he tells me in the face, and I'm going to go to the research. I'm literally thinking this as the drug rep. I don't even have a PRP machine yet. I'm just hearing him talk. And so he leaves. I start doing the face, and I find that it doesn't really work like Juvederm. You do get some new volume and new blood flow, but as you know, you can't sculpt with it. 
So I started combining the two, and that became the vampire facelift. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, I'm still thinking penis. I really thought I was going to play around with the vampire thing for a couple of months just to see if I could do quality control with it. And then I'll just put it on the shelf. I'm going to do something for the penis. And I actually got the name for the priapus shot because I'm thinking I need a G-rated name so nobody has to say penis in front of their grandmother. And I was at a friend's house and he had a picture of priapus on the bathroom wall the Greek god of fertility. Mm-hmm. So I said, what is that guy on the wall? And this is the Priapus. He's the Greek god of fertility. Don't you know that? And I didn't know that. And then I thought, well, duh, that's where we get Priapism. And I went to the medical dictionary, and Priapus, with lowercase, is a synonym in the medical dictionary for penis. So I said, that's my name. So I had a name, but I still wasn't talking about it. Because mm-hmm. the vampire was going crazy. Then... I made the mistake of showing it to one person in one of my vampire workshops. I knew he was a gay man and he had a husband at home. I said, listen, I don't want you to talk about this, but I've got this idea. This is what I'm going to call it. I'm getting good results. I I just taught him the facelift. I said, I want you to go try this on your husband and tell me what you think. And so I did it with him. He went and tried it on his husband. His husband loved it and he started advertising it. Immediately. Like Ben Franklin said, if you want the whole world to know something, tell two friends and ask them to keep a secret. Uh-huh. So as soon as he advertised it, I realized, okay, I have to come out of the closet with this thing. So so I went ahead and started talking about it. And as you know, now some research has come out of it. Mm-hmm. But I still, my focus never became real strong on the Priapus shot until years later because in the meantime, the idea for the O shot came about and I felt like women needed something more than men. So I, I took my focus off of promoting the P-Shot and doing research for the P-Shot, and I put it strongly on the O-Shot because women just don't have as many options. Uh, last time I read, men have something like, you know, it's like 50-something, I don't remember the exact number, FDA-approved devices and medicines to help them have a better rea- uh, right. erection. Mm-hmm. I just told you, now we have finally one FDA-approved drug for women and still not a testosterone. So I just felt like that was the thing I had to run with. So my vampire funded the O-Shot research and the marketing and the thinking about it. In the meantime, I'm talking about the P-Shot, but my focus is on the O-Shot because... Um, so what year was the P-Shot came out? Same year, 2010? Same year, same 2010. And then the O-Shot was 2010 as well? Late, around, yeah, around 2011, early 2011, late 2010. I was following Dr. Matlock's work with the G-Shot, and I'm, um, and I'm, it wasn't like I wasn't thinking about female anatomy because of the my strong patient base doing hormones on literally thousands of women. And I was, so I was thinking about the anatomy, but I, uh, and as you know, there's still not one PubMed, one research paper, now we're up to over 10,000, that shows a granuloma or a serious infection from a PRP done with the FDA approved kit. Mm-hmm. So it all came around about the same time, but my focus was on the O shot. But it went first think of the P shot, do the vampire then do the P-Shot, then I did the O-Shot first time on my girlfriend. Whose idea was it to do to do on the female genital? Was that your idea or your girlfriend's Well, idea? she knew I'd been, it was my idea, but I'm still grateful to her because she finally just said, let's do it. Because the reason I brought up the Matlock story is that 
Many doctors, as you know, had tried for 15 years injecting around the urethra with coaptite, which is calcium hydroxyapatite, collagen, injecting with an HA or hyaluronic acid, which was Matlock's idea, Dr. Matlock. So I had been thinking about the anatomy and actually had written a course about female ejaculation that sells online and the skein's glands and periurethral glands and how that all works. So I'd been talking with her about the idea. So finally she says, we're going out to dinner one night. She says, I want this thing. Let's just do it. So the re- the there was no contemplation about where to do it at all. We didn't even use, we used ice, no numbing cream, nothing. Mm. So she, we go, she goes on the exam table. I put some ice there. And my initial idea was nothing to do with incontinence. My patients taught me that. I was thinking she was already ejaculatory and sexual and everything was working. I was thinking how to make it even better. So my the reason I picked the place we put the shot was I was trying to put the injection into this as best I could where the periurethral glands actually are, into the anterior vaginal wall, and then into the clitoris in the same manner that I would do the P-shot. So the, so treating it, as you know, the anatomy is perfectly analogous. So having done lots of P-shots, best I know, that's the first time anybody ever injected a clitoris, but it, to me it was just a small penis. Mm-hmm. And so I treated it that way, and then when the next day when she was went from functioning in, in a really normal, uh, very healthy way to having almost like persistent genital arousal syndrome. I thought, okay, this worked too well. She does, and now we, um, obviously we know there's not enough time for stem cells to work. It was pressure from the PRP. But still, it encouraged me, okay, let's try this with someone who has a real problem. So my next patient was someone who had severe dyspareunia from abuse. She had been mm-hmm. abused by an ex-husband, physically abused in the anus and the vagina with scarring and severe dyspareunia to the point where she could barely tolerate, she couldn't really tolerate uh, sexual intercourse with men inside of women intercourse. And to have an orgasm took lots of time with a really strong vibrator to the point that was really frustrating for her. And she literally had a callus on her clitoris from that vibrator. Mm -hmm. So that was my next patient. And when she became functional around the six-week mark, that's when I knew, like, dyspronia is gone, and she, within a very short time, was engaged to an old high school sweetheart. And then she calls me and says, hey, I'm losing weight because I can run again without leaking, and I'm sleeping better because I don't have nocturia. She didn't use that word, obviously. Mm-hmm. But very smart, very smart businesswoman telling me this, I'm thinking, I don't think I'm that strong of a placebo. But I still doubted it. So I did more patients before I ever taught it. And it wasn't until we had about 30 doctors like yourself, very bright doctors, telling me, hey, Charles, this really works, that I became more determined that, okay, it really works. So somebody needs to champion this thing, and I need to get other doctors to where they're comfortable teaching it and writing about it and researching it. So at that point... I quit doing the hormone. I stripped out a lot of things out of my practice so that I could focus on championing these ideas and empowering other people who, like yourself, 
you were more knowledgeable when I met you. You were such an expertise with stem cells and PRP, such a bright woman, already teaching how to do these things in the orthopedic arena. So now taking and giving you this idea, you're going to run with it and do things I haven't even thought of, and you have. So I decided that needed to be the thing I do until I have enough enough doctors like yourself out there that I can let go of it and do the next thing. So you, when you first came out with the facelift, you were already teaching. So you came out with it, and so you weren't just doing it on your patient at that time. The facelift? You came out and you started teaching other doctors as well. So when I came out with the facelift, initially it was just me. Then I just started treating a class that was just the vampire and Botox. That's all I taught. Okay. Okay? And it was in one of those classes where I shared the secret about the P-Shot. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And so then the class evolved to teaching all those things together. And as you know, that's a really full day, but it can be done. They're simple procedures, but they're specific in how they should be done. So I, yeah, the class evolved as we figured out more and better ways to, things to do with So it. what was the next procedure after the O-shot? I had a patient who had done extremely well with the facelift who asked me would I do her breast because she had implants that were over 10 years old and she could see the rippling from the saline implant. She was contemplating having them replaced. And I said, well, let's try it. We know fat cells love the PRP. So I did it and it was shocking to me. So that was the next thing that we did. And then of course, out of the procedures, different indications came about. We found out just surprisingly that it helps chronic interstitial cystitis, the, the urinary incontinence came about unexpectedly, and uh, dyspareunia, the, the indications like attenuating the pain with mesh, some of the other indications came about serendipitously from listening. When it's not in a textbook, as you know, the patient's your textbook. Right, right. But the part of the freedom that we had to explore is because to this day, no neoplasia, severe infections, or granulomas from PRP. So it was safe enough we could see what we were able to do with it. Mm-hmm. So then the breast lift was that, and then what's after the breast lift? So uh, hair start to becoming a thing. That didn't come from me. That people were doing that. The next thing that I probably came that came out of our classes was probably. Four years ago, I started putting, uh, doing the same thing with the labia majora that I did with the face. But I didn't think the world was ready for it. I didn't want to roll things out too fast. But eventually, finally, I guess last year or so, we started talking about that idea. And as you know, that's a little bit politically charged subject because obviously... So you're talking about the wing lift? The wing lift, yeah. yeah. So bringing the labia majora back. But because some people have this feeling that somehow we're going out and finding people and then making them self-conscious about their labia so that we can then do our procedure to them. It's never about that. It's just, as you know, but just I want to address that. That was never about, okay, let me think up the next thing to do, people. It was just seeing that, just like with the face, as you lose fat in the cheeks, your face loses some of the rosy color and becomes not uh, the shape becomes less like it was as a younger woman and in the same way the lady majora can do the same thing and when I would and some people would ask for it uh, and sometimes I would just say to them 
If you want, have you noticed, do you want your labia majora to look more like it was when you were 20, like we've done with your face? And then, you know, obviously you're beautiful, everything's great, but if you want to do that, we can. And then it shocked me how surprisingly happy people are after that procedure. They don't realize sometimes the change that's happened gradually. So you put a little PRP and a little Juvederm in the labia majora, even if you don't transfer fat. Some people transfer fat. And then you hand them the mirror and they say, oh, yeah, that's how she used to look. Mm-hmm. And then they're happy. So is that really somehow, uh, There's, I think there's this movement. I know someone created a wall of vaginas. They're all beautiful. They're all like snowflakes, just like faces. They're all beautiful and they're all different. But the idea of bringing someone back to what they were 10 or 20 years ago, to me that seems like a worthwhile thing if the woman wants it. At least as worthwhile as buying a new dress. If a new dress makes you feel sexy or putting on a tie or a jacket makes me feel more sexual, then if a woman wants her labia to, or doing her face with makeup, if she wants her labia to wake up a little bit, to me, but that's probably the thing that in my opinion, in, in doctor circles, gets the most controversy hmm. about it's become okay to tune up the face, but it still sometimes raises feathers the idea of something to make the vagina more like it was 20 years ago. Isn't that funny? Yeah, no, I uh, totally hear you on that. So, But it's like a novel idea. And I think that probably will probably catch on later on when people are ready to mm-hmm. to accept that. Mm-hmm. So what? So what? It's a, essentially the epitome came from when the the rep, the PRP rep, set that and, that and opened up the doors for yes. you. Yes, it was it was the combination of already having searched for something else, having been in the space talking for years to thousands of people because as you know the women when they get better bring their husbands Mm -hmm. because the woman goes from not from being asexual and not occasionally maybe at least maybe most of the time when she gets her sex drive back the man can sometimes not be able to keep up with her so as you know then the man comes to see you so it was a combination of having a basic science chemistry background liking centrifuges with being involved with sexual medicine and cosmetic medicine so that then when he said that sentence to me it was it was instantly before the next sentence was out of his mouth I'm thinking wow that should work if what you just told me is true this is going into my penis hmm. and if it does what I think it will I was imagining if I could create something where 95% of the men who get this shot get a half an inch of size, I'll get my picture on a postage stamp. It, tur- <laughs> it turns out, as you know, it's more like 60% actually get, some do, but it's more maybe 60% get that actual growth. So I don't think I'm going to be on a postage stamp. But Well, you never know. It's too early. <laughs> but, that, but that was my thinking. If what you just said, new volume and new blood flow from a shot, mm-hmm. this is going to make a lot of men happy and a lot of marriages maybe salvaged because, as you know, in the 80s, the thought, the idea of what caused erectile dysfunction was thought to be 85% psycho, psychological. And then we discovered, okay, it's neurovascular, but the things we do 
don't really correct the neurovascular unless it's so severe you do a you know, bypass of the iliac artery or something. But the Viagra doesn't fix the problem. It just makes what's there work harder. The, um, there's pumps, there's, there's implants, all these things. But the idea of actually making the tissue healthier so you need less of the Viagra or the Trimix, mm-hmm. there wasn't really anything out there. As you know now, you're doing the stem cells and there's all these different amnion and all these different options. But at that time, it was pretty much, you didn't really have a good thing to... And this seemed like a really simple way to do it. So I thought, if that really makes the penis harder and bigger, this is going to really be good. And, and that, But the first person that obviously needed to be me ethically, I thought. Mm-hmm. And the, the way I looked at it is that if blood flow is blood flow and collagen and, and, and adipocytes and, and neurons, they're the same whether in your finger or your, your spine or your penis. Mm-hmm. So you guys in the orthopedic line and the, the pain care line, had already you were already an expert in this, right? So you guys are already doing all this volume of research. So at that time, I remember going to PubMed, and there were about 5,000-plus papers in right. PubMed if you just put in platelet-rich plasma. Now, as you know, it's probably, I know it's over 10, it's probably over 11,000 papers. So, wow, this is They've already done the work. The dentist and the orthopedist and the pain people have already been looking at this PRP stuff. But you're the one that thought about putting it in other places that nobody ever thought I about thought, that. Wow, if it's well, making blood flow there, I, it should make I, blood I, flow here. I remember when Kathleen told me about you and your course, and she said, wow, this guy put the PRP in the vagina and the clitoris, and I just went, I'm like, what? <laughs> Is he crazy? <laughs> you want me to go to the course of this guy? <laughs> yeah. She said, no, you got to go. You got to go check it out. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, I do PRP. I'm just going <laughs> to, I was skeptical. I came there and I said, well, I'm just going to see what's going on. And, yeah. of course, I never looked back and it literally changed my, uh, my the way I practice and my outlook. And That was really in Chicago, online. wasn't it? That, no, that was in your office. Was that the first time I was in my office? Yeah, so it was in I your know office. that when you walked in, I thought, wow, this woman's got such a strong background. She's going to be a force. Because you did, you had already had a deep understanding of growth factors and stem cells and PRP and how it all works. So I don't. I think it's something about just the sacredness of genitalia, that somehow we think maybe blood vessels there should behave differently. But blood vessels are blood vessels, right? Absolutely. And so it turns out it doesn't matter where, where really is that. So, uh, so we, we. I always wanted to know the history of how the uh, these procedures came about, and mm. uh, and this is the first time I've heard of it. Mm. And it's great that we actually get to talk about it because I've always wanted to know what the epitome was, what mm-hmm. what really started that. Mm-hmm. So it was really the pee shot. You yeah. thought about the pee shot and the face came first, but mm-hmm. you know, the pee shot was really on your mind mm-hmm. when you were talking uh, to the rep. So that's exciting so um, what would you say was your biggest breakthrough that, so in your whole entire life what was your what would you th- think would say with the moment that was your that with the breakthrough that really changed your life for for medicine just who you are who you oh, are today like a, in a single event I or a person? Or yeah, if I had to pick one single event, my dad actually put me in the car once 
and took me to a statue at University of Alabama in Birmingham. And I don't even remember the guy's name on the statue. But he just took me down there to that statue when I was maybe fourth grade. And the inscription on the statue said something like, he would have been known as a statesman and a soldier, but that he was something greater, a physician. Something to that effect, that this guy did wonderful things. The thing that topped it all was that he was a healer. And so I guess I got brainwashed, but that visit to that statue really plugged into my brain. And I'll tell you something interesting about Donald Trump. No matter what your politics, I will tell you something about Donald Trump. I actually started reading his books when they first started coming out, like Art of the Deal. Mm -hmm. I think I've read three of them. But I know every book that I've read, he says he hates doctors. He just come, I've never heard him say it on the campaign trail now that he's president. But go read his books. He huh. blatantly says, I hate them. I hate doctors. I don't know if he's angry. You know, he had an older brother that died from alcoholism. Maybe something happened with that. I'm actually a capitalist, so I like anything that helps capitalism. But because my grandfather was illegitimate in a time before there was a big social net and was farmed out, most people don't know that. Hmm. But in the South, if you could not afford, so she had a child out of wedlock that was my grandfather, my dad's dad. And back then, if you could not afford to feed your baby, you gave them to a farmer, and the farmer fed them in return for the child working on the farm. So my grandfather never saw a school, not one day. Wow. And he was brought up on the farm, uh, given hand-me-down clothes by people who didn't really care for him that well. It would have been child abuse these mm. days. And at 12, he finally got old enough, to 13 in that range, he got old enough to leave there and go work on the railroad. So a long way of saying, I think social nets are hugely important, but I, but I think social nets crumble if you don't have people creating things that, that create the value that makes the net. So I don't, I don't have a, a dog in the fight for any politician, but I... I think Will, uh, Warren Buffett said it best. Imagine you're going to be a shot out of a tube into the planet. And you don't know if you're going to come out malformed, needing total care in a nursing home. You don't know if you're going to have an IQ of 80 or 180. You don't know if you're going to be well or sick or man or woman or what color skin you're going to have or which continent you're going to be on. But who's, here's the deal. You get to make up the rules before you get shot through the tube. <laughs> I like that. Now, what rules are you going to make? So you're going to reward the hard work and the intelligence, but you're going to build a good, strong safety net. So anyway, I don't want to get political. I right. guess I which did. But if you read Trump's things, he says he hates doctors. I think the reason he hates doctors is nothing, not one building he ever built, not one gorgeous woman he ever laid, not whatever yacht he ever bought, Nothing ever compared to us doing one day in medicine where we cool someone's pain or make a life better in a profound way as a healer. And I think it pisses him off. No matter how many buildings he can build, he can never be as, in my opinion, in his mind, it pisses him off that he can't do what a doctor can do. Hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. That's me reading. But he hates doctors. Hmm. But anyway, I that visit that. to that statue, yeah, he says it in his books. Ah. 
Uh, maybe got over it, but he says it. <laughs> he uses that word. Really? It's probably the statue visit. I have to read the book. Um, so what would be your biggest accomplishment? My, just my sons. Just being a dad. Nothing tops that. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your sons. Three boys who are uh, all different and all wonderful in their own way out exploring the planet. Three boys. How old are they now? Uh, they're all in their 20s. One's a soldier, one's a financial guy, one's a musician. All going their own path. And uh, like all of us, trying to find the best use of their days. Mm. Good boys. Um, so, uh, what makes you happy? Breathing. You know, I'm really of the opinion that you should wake up in the morning glad you get to put your feet on the ground and you should be happy about the fact that you can do that and take a breath and go take a shower and feel the water on your skin and go kiss your sweetheart if you have one uh, or if you don't have one you get to remember the one that you had because you still have a brain uh, you know being able to talk with someone really just so you're happy and celebrating life just it really is to me uh, a treasure a day is a treasure mm-hmm. and I if if anything came out of my years as an ER or maybe it started before then I I could I'm not sure where it started but I probably have an over sensitivity to how brief life is you know, I probably died. I probably was at the bedside when a thousand people died during those ten or twelve years in busy ERs. But I don't know if it's that having seen lots of people die, from babies to teenagers to whatever. But I'm ex- it, there's not a day goes by for some reason that I'm not acutely aware of how short it is, which makes me behave in weird ways. So the house doesn't matter that much because. A day from now or 20 years from now, whatever, whenever I leave the planet, either way, it's not very long. So I don't get to keep this house anyway. But I get a chance to actually somehow maybe make the planet a better place. I guess it sounds stupid but or cliche or Pollyanna, but I think that I really try, even in the pain, to treasure the fact that I had something to lose. Somehow... Uh, is a invaluable miracle almost. Yeah, so pretty much um, I find pleasure in a lot of places where other people might not. What are your hobbies? I know you like to walk and I know that you like to enjoy your time alone. What other hobbies do you have? I goof around with the piano some and I read a lot. Um, pathological amount, and I pathological amount. But I actually uh, enjoy my work and and the travel that it does. But I really think you only get about three things in your life. You get to pick. You don't really get to do everything. You get to pick three things. And so for a long time, mine has been family, work, and trying to stay healthy. 
and I dabble in other things, but you get to be passionate about three things a month. I think you can't be passionately involved in ten things. So it's my work, it's my family, and it's staying healthy so that I'm living the life I'm trying to teach other people to live best I'm able. So this is a question I wanted to ask you. If you were going to write your autobiography, what would you want the headline to be on your autobiography? Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Yeah. I think one of my favorite lines in any movie was when Saving Private Ryan, when ah. he's laying there and he looks up at this friend he came, Private Ryan, who uh-huh. he came to save. I'm blanking out on the actor's name. Who is it? Yes. Yeah. Who was the actor that saw, um, saw pri- Saving Private Ryan? Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Thank yeah, you. Tom so Hanks. Tom Hanks is about to die. And he looks up at the soldier who's standing there, and he says, don't waste this. Mm-hmm. Obviously, don't waste. Live a good life because I just died so that you can. Mm-hmm. And, and really, where we are, we really, a lot of people died so that I can live like this. Millions of men have died. People have invented things. People have died things. And... And so, I don't want to waste it. I like that. I like that. So, I really appreciate your spending the time with me. And I really want to summarize what I, I have an impression of you and what I know other colleagues of mine have an impression of you. Is you're an innovator. You're a pioneer. You're a leader. You're a teacher. And you're very compassionate. And that's what, what I feel is very unique about you is is having all those abilities in one person. Obviously, you're super, super smart and, and very passionate about what you want to do. And so uh, I'm very honored and proud to be able to do this interview with you and be part of uh, your group, uh, in the Cellular Medicine Association. And so lastly, wh- where do you see the CMA and what you what we're doing right now in the next so 10, first of all I, I think you know Michelangelo said if you knew how much work was involved you wouldn't think I'm a genius <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't I don't really consider myself a genius I just consider myself uh, more like a bulldog that just won't stop and and but still I'm grateful for your compliments because I perceive you as a brilliant, true genius, and we're, and also an obviously an innovator because you were doing stem cells and way involved in the PRP before I knew what it was. So well, I'm, I'm honored by your compliments, but um, as far as where things go, it's almost I want it to take a life of its own, and the way it does that is by people like you who are truly genius and now running with it and so part of the reason we're here today obviously is that we're meeting together to see where can it go and coming up with ideas for new research and new classes and new um, new ways of to both make people well and to let them know that we're able to do these things so I I see it I, s- I see the cell as being the basic building block of the body and as these ideas 
become more refined and we understand them better, I think it's going to be shocking what we're able to do, the diseases we can make better, and the, um, the quality of life we're going to be able to offer people. I totally agree with that. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. It was fun. This podcast is sponsored by the Trong Rehabilitation Center. Visit Dr. Ann Trong at trongrehab.com. That's T-R-U-O-N-G rehab.com. Or call her today at 540-374-3164. That's 540-374-3164.